Amen. What a blessing to know that he does live in us in spite of sometimes our perfection, that he chooses to dwell among his people. What an incredible privilege it is is for us to be able to call him not just our Savior, but our Lord. And he chooses to fill us with his grace. This week I had the opportunity to see something or almost see something that would have been the coolest thing in the world for me. Uh, I will tell you, by the way, if you are an animal lover, you might not appreciate it as much as I do. I understand that there are, everyone has something that you dislike. For example, some of you dislike spiders, some of you dislike snakes, some of you dislike both, Uh, some of you dislike rodents. Uh, I personally have a dislike for squirrels and cats. Part of it, I know some of you guys have cats and that's not really exciting to you, but I honestly believe that cats and squirrels are on a combined mission to destroy my yard. Uh, They are constantly in my trash can. Even if you put a lid on it, they will knock the trash can over to get what is in there. And once they get it open, it goes everywhere. And I really think they're intentional about the way they do it. Probably not. I admit that I am one of those guys, I dislike squirrels enough that I will shoot them with a BB gun. Uh, Not enough to kill them, but just to make them mad, that kind of thing. So that's probably why they're terrorizing me. And of course, then I have neighbors who have cats. And for some reason, they believe that my yard is the place that they need to be. I walked out, I guess it was Wednesday morning, and as I walked out, the neighbor's cat saw me. Now, I don't shoot them with BB guns, but as soon as he saw me, he took off running, ran out right into the middle of the street, and then he sat there, and he watched me, and I watched as well. As this hawk, and I'm not kidding, this hawk's wingspan was probably something, it was huge, the biggest bird I have ever seen as it swooped down and tried to grab that cat. Do you know how cool that would have been to watch him carry that cat off? When I left, the cat was still hiding up underneath the neighbor's car because he was scared to death of that hawk. I share that with you because of basically the humorous side of, actually because I loved seeing it personally, Um, but I share that with you because of the humorous side where we see Uh, two groups, cats and squirrels, working together to destroy my yard. By themselves, they would just be annoying, but when they do it together, man, they can be really good at what they're doing. In the same way, today I want us to see how when we work together, when we are a united body, the body of Christ can do amazing things. Yet when we try to do things on our own, there are limits to what can take place. 2011, the Philadelphia Eagles, while we were living in the Philadelphia area, they had recruited some of the best players in professional sports. They had done a fantastic job with their draft. They had picked some great stars who were going to be futures in the NFL. They had picked up some great free agents, individuals that I don't know how they got them, but they had some amazing athletes. They were so good athletically that they began to deem themselves as the dream team. In fact, it began with one of the players who noted that this is like having a dream team and the name stuck. The media began to use this name and the next thing you know, this dream team began to play 
but not very well. All of these incredible athletes, 2011 was the first time since 2007 that the Philadelphia Eagles did not make the playoffs. But they had all these amazing athletes. Actually, out of this team of incredible athletes, only three players would even make the Pro Bowl that year. Every individual on the team underperformed. None of them were able to do what they anticipated doing. And you may ask the question, why? First of all, Pastor Mike, why are you sharing this? Is this just to rub it in the face of all those Eagles fans? Actually, no, it has nothing at all to do with that, even though I do enjoy that too. It is, I want you to realize that even if you have the best, most talented people in the world, if you cannot work together as a team, you can only get so much out of them. It's kind of like when you put two ox, oxen beside each other and they begin to pull. You would think that they would be able to pull the same as what two individual ox would do on their own. Basically, together, that weight would double. They could pull just as much weight as they could if they were operating individually. Well, that's not the way it works. Statistically, if you take one ox who's able to pull a thousand pounds worth of weight, if you put him alongside another ox and together they pull, they can't just pull 2,000 pounds of weight. A part of it is because they no longer feel the need to do it on their own, but they have others who are coming alongside them. What happens is that oxes, those oxen are able to then pull up to 10,000 pounds which is amazing to me. How is that even possible? It's because you're not doing it by yourself. Today, I want us to see that unity, working together as a team, can change the amount of impact that we as the body of Christ can make. Of course, the same thing is said in Scripture on many occasions. In fact, in Psalm 133, it says, How good and pleasant it is. When God's people live together in unity. And Ephesians 4.3 says that we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then, of course, in our passage today, we see this call to unity. And we're going to look at it here. But understand that the focus today is us being one. What is it that makes us one? It is the Savior that we all share in. It is the salvation that has been made possible to us. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the body of Christ. It doesn't matter the choices that have been made in between from the moment you chose Christ and today. What matters is we have one Savior, one God, and we have one hope and future because of that God. We can be one. In fact, we must be one. The passage this morning tells us, it's found in, uh, specifically this morning, it's found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. It says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. 
forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. What does unity look like in the body of Christ? All these things that we just looked at, that's what it is. When these things occur in the body of Christ, unity will be present. My first point to you this morning is you are God's chosen people. Act like it. You are the individuals that God has chosen to be the bearer of his good news. We have a world around us that is desperately in need of a savior. They desperately need, especially, man, I tell you what, I am so ready for this election series season to be over. I am so tired of seeing Christians fight with one another. I am so tired of everybody wanting to share their opinions on this. And it's not that I don't want to hear everyone's opinions. It's just that, well, I really don't want to hear everybody's opinions. If you're looking for a good moral leader, you're not going to find it in the candidates that we have. So the question is, what do we do? What do we do as the body of Christ when one individual thinks that this is the best way and another thinks that this is the best way and then we get in these situations like in social media or maybe in a small group or at work or wherever and everybody wants to share their opinions and most of us are pretty confident that our opinion is right. How do we still behave like the body of Christ and still display unity? when there are so many differences in our understanding. As we look in this passage here in Colossians, we actually see how that's possible. Know that it's not just about keeping a list of do's and don'ts. It is about loving the way that Christ has already loved us. According to the Apostle Paul, it shows up in things like compassion and kindness Humility, gentleness, and patience. Notice that these are not so much about obedience as much as they are about having a heart that is fixed on God. Although I will add that I am convinced that obedience or a lack of obedience does reveal the heart and what we are fixed on. I love the way John says it in 1 John chapter 4. He says, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. And then skipping down a little further, he says, If someone says, I love God but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command, those who love God must also love their fellow believers. Clearly, God expects us to love one another, and that love shows up in our compassion, in our kindness, our humility, our gentleness, and our patience. Let me ask you a couple questions, just associated directly with Paul's assessment and John's assessment here. 
where does compassion show up in your life? I've seen individuals who are very outspoken on political issues. They're very confident that this is the best thing that we need to do for our nation. But at times I wonder why we speak out so adamantly politically, yet we are so uninvolved in acts of compassion to our world. We see the need for reversing things like Roe v. Wade. When was the last time you expressed compassion by serving a young unwed mother? By participating, by volunteering at a crisis pregnancy center. By the way, I am all for reversing Roe v. Wade. I am very much against abortion. So please understand the purpose of that question is not to challenge that mindset. But if we don't act with compassion in the midst of it, who cares how politically active you are? We must be filled with compassion, a compassion that calls us to act. So where does your compassion show up in your life? What about your kindness? Is kindness something that we talk about in church? Is it something we expect from other people? But maybe it doesn't show up as often as it should in our lives. Would anybody describe you as humble, as having humility? I know sometimes, and I understand that there are times that we just kind of, we joke about how good we are at different things. I do. But understand this. There is nothing about me that should be lifted up in front of anybody else. I am no better than any person in this room. I'm no better than the people that are out there. Do you know that? Do you know that you are not better than the other people around you? Because it would seem to me at times that we're very outspoken about how good we are and how right we are as if we have the corner, we have the market cornered on information and knowledge. We're better than everybody else. We're smarter than everybody else. And if only they could see things the way we see them, then they would be right. What about gentleness? By the way, it's great that we speak the truth to other people. We need to speak the truth. But do you know God calls us to speak the truth in love, which is gentleness? It's not always about what we say, it's how we say it. Would anybody call you gentle? <laughs> Patience. If you're married or if you have children, I will promise you that has been tested somewhere along the way. Your patience at times has been challenged because you're forced to live with other people who don't always do things the way you want them to do it or as fast as you want them to do it. And patience can really be tough. Would anybody refer to you as patient? Let me suggest to you that there is an enemy to all five of these things. That enemy is arrogance. In the midst of our daily lives, there is a sense of, it is my way or the highway. I know what's right. 
I'm the one who's in charge. And our arrogance stands in the way of compassion. We look at other people and we can blame them for their situation. That's not an act of compassion. It's an act of judgment. It's an act of arrogance. Our kindness. Why should I be kind to them? They should be kind to me. Why should I be kind to them? That is an act of arrogance. Humility. (laughs) The exact opposite of arrogance. Titus chapter 3 verses 2 through 5 says this. He's talking about the body of Christ. Talking about those who would serve the Lord, who would be used by God. He says, they must not slander anyone. Must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. Do you still recognize that it is only by grace that you have been saved? You know, I think at times we've been in the body of Christ so long that maybe we can kind of see the progress that we've made and we look at ourselves almost as, well, you know what, I'm good now. But do you know that your goodness is nothing but filthy rags to God himself? Because he looks and no matter how good you think you are, it's never good enough. Do you realize that you have great reason for humility because the truth is none of us deserves what God has done for us. It is only by his grace. I would tell you that there are many great models of unity in the body of Christ or in God's family. You see them many times throughout scripture. Probably one of the clearest examples for me of unity in the, the body is seen in the relationship between Joshua and Moses. We see this on many occasions as Joshua basically becomes Moses' right-hand man. He kind of, uh, whatever Moses needs, Joshua is there, and he is kind of the, the guy who Moses could always count on. Uh, it's interesting because Moses had other people that he kind of counted on at times. We know early in his uh, ministry and his leadership, he has Aaron who is there with him, although Aaron seems to kind of take a back seat pretty quickly. Part of it's because of some poor choices that Aaron makes. Aaron is one who's involved with making a golden calf uh, for the Israelites, for them to be able to worship. I'm not sure that's the guy that I want uh, being Moses' voice, which was the role that he initially had. God had another plan, and he puts a guy named Joshua in Moses' life instead. Although there are many examples of them working together as one, probably one of the clearest examples is what's seen in Exodus chapter 17, where it says this, Moses said to Joshua, 
Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. I'll tell you, first of all, that's probably one of the really coolest stories you'll find in Scripture. Uh, The idea that as Joshua takes the Israelites out to fight, Moses simply goes up on a hill and you kind of picture him. He's got his staff in one hand and his other hand up and basically he keeps his hands out as a blessing for the people of Israel. Imagine the comfort that would have given the Israelites as they went into battle that day. As they looked up and they saw the blessing of God because they believed very clearly that Moses was God's representative. And as long as his hands were outstretched, they believed that God was going to bless them and provide. But of course, after a while, I don't know how long they fought, probably hours, his hands began to grow a little tired. And it wasn't long before he could no longer hold his staff up. And Aaron and Hur are there with him. And immediately they look around. They find this big rock that he can just sit on. But that's not enough. Because it wasn't just that his legs were tired from standing all day. It was that his arms were tired. So you picture them coming over and grabbing the arms and holding them up. So that as he grows tired, they are there to continue to hold those hands there. As the hands would begin to sink, the Israelites would start to lose their battle. Imagine if all of a sudden Moses said, oh, I can't do it anymore. Joshua and the rest of the Israelites lose the battle. But Aaron and Hur are there to stand alongside him and help him do what God had called him to do. What's interesting for me, first of all, there is a model of unity, even with those three individuals up on the hill, Moses, Aaron, and Hur. Moses is unable to stand alone. He needs Aaron and Hur there with him to be that support, because even though God is working through Moses, Moses cannot do it alone. Do you know that that is where we are too. God chooses to work through his people. And you say, well, God has gifted me, he's blessed me, and I can do incredible things I never thought imaginable. Maybe as you look at your life, you think to yourself, I never saw me being able to do these things. Fantastic, praise God. But you still can't do it alone. You need an Aaron and a Her who will stand alongside you and hold your hands up when you can't do it yourself. In addition, I look at Joshua, who was down in the valley. He would be the face of their army. He would be the one who would put his life in jeopardy. But do you know that at the end of the battle, the people probably didn't celebrate Joshua as much as they did Moses. Moses had his hands up. And if he lowered them, 
They lost. If you kept them up, they won. So it's easy to make the connection and say Moses is the one who's doing this. God's doing it through Moses. But do you know Joshua had an incredibly important role that day? Joshua seems content to not receive any credit for what's taking place. That is a part of being on a team. Who cares if you get credit if your team wins? The body of Christ is not about celebrating you. I want to celebrate you. I want to say thanks to all those who make ministry happen. I had people yesterday, we had a funeral, and there were people who came, and they were so grateful for those who had made things happen. And of course, you know I'm the pastor, so I get some of the credit. Do you know that we fed that family yesterday, and I had absolutely nothing to do with that? Is Keith in here today? He's out in the kitchen working because we've got other stuff going on today too. Keith worked his tail off yesterday to make that happen. But Keith didn't get any credit for it. But he filled his role within the team. We need to be team players if we are truly going to change this world. It doesn't matter who gets the credit. We need each other. But as we serve, we must allow God to do the work regardless of who gets the credit. As we look at Joshua and Moses and Aaron and Hur, they each had their role to play. They trusted each other, and when they all fulfilled their roles, God granted them victory, and we must do the same. As we look at the other things that are present in a body that is united, still in the passage in Colossians, the other thing that is included is forgiveness. Understand the common ground that we share Every one of us needed forgiveness at some point or another. We all needed God to forgive us for the choices that we had made in the life that we had lived. You know better than anybody else. If we had to be forgiven, why is it so hard for us to forgive other people then? Why is it so hard for us to let things go and to leave things in the past? Maybe there's a part of us that we don't fully understand how much forgiveness we have received. This is not a new principle, but the wages of sin is death. And if I understand things correctly, every person in this room has committed sin at one point or another. Which means that you deserve to die. Now, understand that if the wages of sin is death and someone else were to take your place indirectly, that individual's death was caused by you. Do you follow my logic here? Someone had to die and the individual died in your place. Therefore, they died because of you. Who could forgive such a thing? Imagine for a moment that you were drunk and driving a vehicle that killed a young man. I've shared this illustration with you before, but I want you to think about it for a second. Your actions cost the life of a young man. You go to jail for it. You spend years in jail. And while you're there, you think about what you can do to make up for the action that took place on that night. 
You decide when you get out, you're going to go to those parents of that young boy and you're going to do everything that a young boy would have done for his family. You're going to rake his leaves. You're going to clean the gutters. You're going to go and serve by going to the grocery store. You're going to do anything that they need until you have made up for what you did. At what point have you done enough so that that mom and dad can truly forgive you? Never. There's nothing you can do to earn that forgiveness. And in the same way, every individual in this room, by our choice to allow sin to be present in our lives, we have been responsible in the death of Christ. For God to offer us that kind of forgiveness is almost unimaginable. If you cost the life of my son, could I forgive you? I don't know. I want to be able to say yes, but I don't know because that's a really difficult thing to comprehend. That is exactly what God has done for us. As Christ has forgiven you, you also must be able to forgive others in your life. We must be a body of Christ that is not so much about getting our way. There are times that people say things and afterwards we think to ourselves, why did they say that? Or maybe it's us and we say, why did we say this? What I will tell you is we are a body that needs to be forgiven by one another. In 23 days or something like that, we as a nation will go and we will vote for a president. I don't know who's going to win. I honestly, there's a part of me, I'm not even 100% sure that I care who wins. I have my opinions, just like everybody else does. But I know that on that following day, all the debating and stuff that has taken place now will seem less significant. Will we as the body of Christ still be the body of Christ? Will we be able to forgive those who maybe they voted in a different way? Will we be able to forgive those who had different opinions and expressed it so passionately? The body of Christ must be united. You see, the rest of the world looks at us and they need to see what sets us apart. And I'm not sure that that's what they're getting right now. What sets us apart is Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't like the candidates. Maybe you don't like any of the candidates. I admit I'm really close to being in that position. What do you stand for? Stand for Christ. Stand for what you believe. I love the idea that we have very clear principles that are laid out in Scripture. We need to stand for those. But at the same time, allow us to be the body of Christ. One body united by one God with one hope. In him. Allow us to be one. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you, we recognize that we live in a very divided society. 
We live in a society that is so easily drawn into conflict. Lord, I pray right now that you would help us as the body of Christ. Help us to stand for truth, but also help us to be one. Help us to make sure that even if we have differences in opinions and ideology, that we keep our eyes fixed on the one thing that truly unites us, and that's you. At times we have spoken not with gentleness, not with compassion or kindness or humility or even patience, but we have spoken with arrogance. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us and help us to now be your voice, not of those things, but help us truly to be a voice of those who are in love with you. Give us a heart for you, and we will give you praise for what you do in us. Allow us to be your tools, your instruments to the people around us. But we do pray for the election that is ahead. We don't know who the next president will be. But we put our trust not in those individuals, but rather in you. Lord, we ask that your will would be done. Maybe at this time, this is a time of brokenness that our nation has to go through. And maybe the individual that we want is not the one that you want. Lord, I pray that your will would be done. Whatever it takes to bring us into a right relationship with you, we pray that you would make that happen. And we will give you praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I do want to challenge you as I just kind of give one last word. Don't let this election season keep you from being the body of Christ. So easy to let it happen, to get sucked into all the debating and everything else. Man, I've, I've let it happen with me. It shouldn't happen. Allow us to be one body united by Christ. Thank you all for being with us and go in peace.